What if you could be somebody who just without thinking about it was courageous? And at that point, the virtue becomes part of you. It's, it's, you've actually habituated yourself to virtue in the sense that now you are actually a courageous person, not just somebody who's practicing courage. But the liturgy at its best, it reminds us that God is glorious, he's majestic, and that even if, thing, even if everything is going to rack and ruin here on earth, he still deserves to be praised for his majesty, for his glory, for his goodness. You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Podcast, a place for thinkers. Join us as we explore the depths of theology, philosophy, and the Christian intellectual life. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Podcast place for thinkers. I'm Daniel Roberts, your host, and I'm joined today again by Dr. Jim Polig, uh, Bible translator extraordinaire. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about uh, liturgical language in the church and some of the problems that that causes. And for those of you who may not know what liturgy is or tend to drink grape juice rather than wine, this will be a very informative podcast for you. So uh, if you got your wine, great. If you got grape juice, great. Everybody's welcome here. And we're going to be talking about how liturgy influences theology, understanding of theology, and how translation of liturgy impacts um, a congregant's understanding of their denominational beliefs. Is that fair to say, Jim? It's in the ballpark. It's in the ballpark. <laughs> okay. Well, hopefully we can get it, you know, I don't know what the equivalent uh, of the accurate analogy of that would be, but, you know, hopefully we can get it in the infield. That, that'd be that'd be good. So. Uh, Without further ado, Jim, welcome on the podcast again. Thank you very much. I didn't scare you away. Not, not yet. Not yet, but you know, you're a tough guy. So, and as and, and as you were saying before we got on here, you, you've uh, experienced much worse. Yes. <laughs> so, what are we talking about today? What we're talking, talking about? about liturgical language in the church. Okay. And you by want to add a little more. <laughs> Perhaps we should define liturgy. Yes. So the first thing uh, for people that don't understand, you know, especially if they go to a non-denominational church or a like a Baptist church or a non-liturgical church, um, what is the order of service for an Anglican or Catholic or what we would call liturgical churches? Right. Over many centuries, a certain fundamental order developed. Okay in what's called now the Liturgy of the Eucharist, also the Liturgy of the Word, and the Liturgy of Holy Communion, or in Catholic terms, the Liturgy of the Mass. The fundamental order is first a ceremony of greeting from the pastor or priest, and then um, an entrance hymn, or perhaps sometimes it's reversed in order. And then you have the liturgy of the word, the reading of, of so-called lessons, that is lectures, that is to say an Old Testament reading, usually a reading from one of the New Testament epistles, and then a reading from one of the four Gospels, followed by usually a sermon, 
Okay. Or homily. And then somewhere after that is a time of prayer, public prayer in the service. Is this the prayers of the people section that you're referring to? Or it, could it be different types of public prayer? Prayers of the people is what the Anglican Church of North America calls it. Okay. The recitation of one of the creeds, usually the Nicene Creed, if there is communion that is celebrated, as tends to be every week now. And then you go into the liturgy of the Eucharist itself with a series of more or less set short hymns and readings based upon Scripture, explaining the rationale and the purpose of Holy Communion, then the administration of Communion, and then the closing prayers and blessing. Okay. Can I ask a question before we move further? So what was the... what Was illiteracy or anything like that uh, of the as as the church is expanding, would that have been a reason for these kinds of formal practices in order to keep a consistency among the churches, or why was it being developed? Why did they? Why did? Why did Christians actually develop a formal way of worship? Was it just something that they did out of habit because the early Christians were Jewish and so they were just used to ceremonial things, or were they trying to solve something some other problem? I think to a certain degree you can say that among Old Testament Jews, certainly Jews of the time of Jesus, liter the literacy rate was probably very high. Okay. But they did have regular order of events in the synagogue worship every Sabbath. And it is quite clear that at least some elements the early Christians just took over lock, stock, and barrel. For example, the tradition of selecting readings from the Old Testament did not start with the early Christians. It started with the, with the, with the Jews, hmm. the non-Christian Jews. Uh, to this day, in the Jewish world, you have a system of readings for every Sabbath. You have a reading from the Torah, of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, then the half-Torah readings which are readings from one of the Old Testament prophets. Hmm. So this idea of creating a schedule of readings is very old. And the Christians took it over, and then as the New Testament was created and uh, expanded, obviously it was a natural thing for them to include, early Christians to include readings from the New Testament as okay. well. Okay, and so in, in, in Jewish congregations, would they do an Old Testament reading, a psalm, and then a minor prophet in the same way that we do an Old Testament reading, a psalm, and a New Testament reading? I don't know of the order okay. in the Jewish tradition, and indeed there probably were more than one yeah. sort of Jewish tradition, but the psalms certainly are rightly called the hymnal of Judaism. Yeah. So yes... Uh, and in fact, we, as Christians in liturgical worship, typically include a psalm reading that's either read or sung Yeah, as well. Because I was reading in a book um, called The Anglican Spiritual Tradition about one of, the, one of the things they would do, especially for theologically illiterate priests, they would actually send them sermons that were approved, mm -hmm. and, and they would just be read. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so would, you know, as a literacy rates, you know, I'm just kind of curious about this as literacy rates like dropped or even not just the ability to read, but theological literacy, uh, kind of fluctuated amongst different groups of people. Did you, would you see a corresponding kind of liturgical formula being imposed on those churches? Like, would, do you see that in your understanding of history or is that kind of like, not, is that something that you don't really notice? I've never considered liturgy from that point of view. My initial reaction would be, no, I don't think that the development of liturgy depended upon perceived literacy rates. I think it developed among other things. I had a professor once many years ago who explained the development of liturgy like this. Imagine a group of early Christians gathering together, and one day, quite spontaneously, the leader says, may the Lord be with you. And somebody says, and with your spirit. And the next day they met, somebody said, you know, I really like that. Let's say it again. Yeah. <laughs> and the rest is history. Yeah. Well, you you also see this in like, you know, in, uh, you know, churches have different ecclesiological structures mm-hmm. or church authority structures. And you, you do see this, I think, sometimes in, in Baptist churches too, or non-denominational churches. The same kind of thing happens. It's like, you know, they have a lot more freedom in, in their churches, and they'll, something like that will happen, and then it'll become the, you know, like potlucks, for example. Like, you know, I mean, I'm pretty sure the early Christians didn't necessarily call it a potluck, you know, but somewhere along the line, somebody said, let's have a potluck, you know, and it worked out. Even non-liturgical churches have settled ways of doing things. Yeah. On Sunday morning, for right. example. Yep. We are, after all, creatures of habit. Habit is a like a double-edged sword, I think. Mm-hmm. It's easy to get bored with habit. Yeah. And for habit to become trite or rote. But the strength of habit is if you have a good habit, you're always doing it. Right. Are you, are you familiar with Aristotle's view of habits at all? Tell me. So uh, Arist- Aristotle's view of habits was that you would it, would it was if you wanted to be a good person, you should form, you should practice being good. Hmm. But if you, and Thomas Aquinas goes into this too, and, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here a lot of history, but the idea was, is that if some, the, the goal was to make it natural, like brushing your teeth, right? 30 days to start a habit. And the idea of a habit is that you can do it without thinking about it. Yes. And so when Aristotle looks at this, he says, well, what if you did that with courage? What if you could be somebody who just without thinking about it was courageous? And at that point, the virtue becomes part of you. It's, it's, you've actually habituated yourself to virtue in the sense that now you are actually a courageous person, not just somebody who's practicing courage. Mm. And uh, the same thing I think he would say would be said of evil or, or things that um, aren't necessarily beneficial for you, even, even uh, ways of thinking. And so this is where you get the idea, uh, Thomas Aquinas, I think, paraphrasing, says, you know, and this is how a man becomes capable of saying evil is good and good is evil because he's habituated himself to the evil. And now to him, it seems good. But in, in a similar way, mm-hmm. if it, you're using it in a more negative way, but uh, around liturgy. But yeah, it becomes just rote is what you're saying. But well, it's, it it's, can it's, become rote. Yeah. But it also sets... A good liturgy also sets a good pattern mm-hmm. of worship of relating to God. The Catholics, in my experience, Roman Catholics are very good at saying, 
that the liturgy is the prayer of the church. You have to think about this. It's up to the church to set a good pattern of relating to God. It's not enough for, in my opinion, it's not enough for the Christian to find this pattern in the Scripture. It's essential that the Christian find this pattern in the Scripture. But the Christian also sees needs, I think, to see it modeled in real life. Yeah. And this is, at its best, what liturgy does. So it sets a form, it sets a prayer. You could regard the Lord's Prayer as a form of liturgy if you wanted to, because in it, the Lord sets the pattern for how to approach God. Right. And so when you say modeled in real life, what, what do you mean by that? Like, do you mean just people need to see priests praying, or they just—what do you mean? I mean, when I'm under the gun— Mm-hmm. when I don't know how to pray to God because I have too many emergencies or crises, when I am at my wit's end and I feel demoralized, it, it's really a help to me to have somebody in here the church saying, Polig, remember, in spite of what you may feel, this is how to approach God. Mm. And if you cannot come up with words from your heart to say, well, here are words that God will honor if you, if you are sincere. Yeah. It's like trust your training. Yes. That's what they tell soldiers and stuff. Like when they panic, and, and you'll see this in movies, they'll say, like a guy gets into a precarious situation, and they'll say, trust your training. When you're in dire straits, you know, the church can give you something when, when you can't think of words, you know, here are some words that you can pray. Now, I think that some people might actually respond to that, but doesn't the Holy Spirit just, you know, pray for us when we're in that situation? Like somebody who's not a fan of liturgy might say, well, if the Holy Spirit prays for me, then why do I need a church to tell me what's an acceptable prayer? Well, the Holy Spirit does pray for me and for you. Certainly, we believe that. But that's, that's not quite the same, is it, as us approaching God ourselves? Sometimes we get wrapped up in our subjective feelings, in our subjectivity, I would say, in our life with God, and we get, at least I get tangled up yeah. by all kinds of feelings and thoughts. And I need a more objective kind of standard by which I can approach God. Yeah. So that's part of the value of liturgy. The value, the another value in liturgy is that, as it's often said, is that in a liturgical church, no matter where you are in the world in the church, you know that the same prayers are being prayed, and it's not a matter of just words being uttered, as we know, mm-hmm. but it's a matter of the words. Uh, corralling the thoughts and the desires and the devotion of God's faithful people around the world. And at its best, then, liturgy is a compilation of Scripture-based thoughts, responses, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Blessed be 
God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the congregation says, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. Amen. Lots of points of really good mm-hmm. spiritual theological points are made in these prayers and in these acclamations. There is an old adage in Latin, lex orandi, lex credendi. The law that is the principle of praying is the principle of believing. That is to say, you will pray in the way that you believe. And the way you pray, day after day or week after week, will help determine actually what you believe Yeah, as well. Yeah, this, uh, this actually is something that I haven't done a deep dive on, but one of the things, you know, you and I have talked about uh, Cartesianism quite a bit. If you believe that man is essentially a soul and that his body is accidental to what he is, um, and you see this in movies, right? When when there's a funny movie where a man's soul gets transported into a dog. Yes. And it's like, well, he's still the same person. He's just in a dog's body. That, that's a Cartesian kind of way of thinking about the nature of man. And especially when you consider the resurrection body, you know, it's not like we're just going to come back as these like ethereal, immaterial souls that we kind of phase in and out of our bodies when Jesus rules the world. You actually are going to have a resurrection body. And... The idea here is that when you are a fully human being is that your soul and your body are united, and that, that's what it means to be a human. And so uh, the things you do with your body inform your, your, your soul, and the things that you think about with your soul inform your body. Mm. And there's this uh, symbiotic relationship, basically, between the soul and the body. And so one of the things that, as a practical application that this has, is that Let's say you struggle with reverence of God. Like, you just don't feel like he's there. You don't really think anything of it. Like, you know that he's there, but you don't have a proper respect for him. You know deep in your heart. Well, one of the things that a hylomorphic view of man would say is, then maybe you should start putting yourself in a posture of reverence to God. And when your body is in that posture, your soul will gain more reverence. And, and it's the same kind of idea of, you know, you pray what you believe and, and your prayers inform what you believe. You know, it's this kind of circular way of thinking about it. And we're not talking for those logicians out there. We're not making a logical argument right now. So, you know, circular reasoning is not what we're trying to do here. But we're describing that there's this two-way street between the soul and the body hmm. on a hylomorphic view in the same way that there's a, a two-way street between your beliefs and the way you pray. And the idea of, you know, a Thomistic anthropology or something like that I'm not sure is actually, I don't know that you can be, you know, in a non-denominational or evangelical church, have a Thomistic anthropology and not adopt some form of liturgical practice, because that's one of the consequences of it, it seems, is that, yeah, if you, if you actually are struggling with a reverence or a proper spiritual posture for God, try putting your body in that posture as well. You know, and if you're kneeling or if you're, you're praying quietly or you're raising your hands up, you know, these kinds of things actually do cause you to, to habituate yourself to reverence. And it starts with the body on, a, on that view. But anyway, yeah, it's just a side note. Yes. And also, when you consider the things that are said or sung in the liturgy, I'm mm-hmm. looking here at the hymn that the church constructed based on scripture, the Gloria in Excelsis, the Gloria in the highest places. What page are you on? 
page 125, for example. And what what ver what book of uh, Common Prayer are you in? Are you in the 2019? Yes, the 2019 Book of Common Prayer of the Anglican Church of North America is a good example. And uh, 119, you said? Page 125. 125, I was way off. <laughs> Glory to God in the highest, and peace to his people on earth. Lord God, heavenly King, almighty God and Father, we worship you, we give you thanks, we praise you for your glory. Sometimes we, at least I, forget to praise God for his majesty. These are things that we take for granted. But the liturgy at its best, it reminds us that God is glorious, he's majestic, and that even if, thing, even if everything is going to rack and ruin here on earth, mm -hmm. he still deserves to be praised for his majesty, for his glory, for his goodness. And the liturgy does that. It reminds us. The re liturgy is also something else. It is a repository for beautiful language. Mm. I firmly think that there is an instinct in mankind placed by God, whether he's a Christian or a Jew or pagan, yeah. to bring to God or to the gods, as he conceives them to be, what is best, what is most beautiful. There is this instinct in us to do this. This is why we have beautiful music in worship. It's why you can go into churches and see stained glass windows and other beautiful things. We could easily worship God without these things. But there is this instinct to bring God as well in liturgy, what is beautiful in language. You know, the English liturgy, that was the adaptation of the Latin Mass, was, came, was a result of the English Reformation in the 1500s. Can I ask a question about that real yes. quick, just clarifying? So yes. are you saying that prior to the Reformation, all liturgies were in Latin? Uh, virtually, yes. Wow, yes. okay. Yes, which was opaque to most people mm -hmm. in Europe. But with the development of the English liturgy at the English Reformation, remember this is, was right at Shakespeare's time or just before Shakespeare. Now, I never listen to any, any lines of poetry produced by Shakespeare without thinking how much beauty in language the man produced. The prologue to Henry V. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. Mm. And this is the same kind of beauty that, of course, Even Miles Coverdale, about 1555, produced in his Psalter, or in English. Who was Miles Coverdale, for those who don't know? He translated... I'm he, one of them. He translated <laughs> the Latin Psalms, the Psalm, the book of Psalms from Latin into, into English. And that became a lot of the basis of the King James version of the Psalms. And the King James version of the Psalms still... In, to this day, exerts an outsized influence mm. in translation. In how our psalms are translated. Yeah. So would this be? Would this example be, for example, 
um, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Like that's the King James version, right? That, sure. That old version. Sure. And for me, and I'm just trying to tie this back to a practical example of what you're saying is of how it exerts this strong influence. Like I cannot think of a, a modern version of Psalm 23 because I memorized it in neither the new King James or the, or the King James version back when I was a kid in, in the old Sparkies for those Awana groupies out there. Yes, the renewed Coverdale version that the that the Anglican Church of North America did. After all, they did have to update Coverdale's English mm-hmm. of the mid fifteen hundreds. Right. Reads even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that is virtually what you cited from the King James. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the order of the service would be which we already talked about. This would be true amongst the, the Anglican Church of North America. Do the Episcopals still follow that, you think? Very much so. Really? Okay. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I wasn't sure because they've kind of gone off the reservation, you know, so I wasn't sure if they'd gone all the way. The Methodists way. in their better moments follow it. Okay. The <laughs> Roman Catholics, the Lutherans, and others I should probably remember. Yeah, that's all right. Yes. You're, you're on a podcast. It's easy for your memory to kind of drift when you're in front of the microphone. But my question is, what is the actual purpose of liturgy? Like, how would you summarize it to somebody? What's its purpose? Like, if you're just trying to explain to a guy in the street, what would you say? Or like me. <laughs> I suppose you could approach the question with different answers. One answer would be it's a guide for public worship. After all, in public worship, you have to say something. You have to sing something. You have to read something. How are you going to do it? What are you going to do? Are you just going to go get up on the platform and hem and haw? Right. Or what? Yeah. So that's one thing. It's also a repository of, of worthy thoughts about God. It's a way of unfolding the counsel of God in the Scriptures— Virtually everything in the liturgy is scripture-based, almost directly. Mm -hmm. So it's at least those things. And as the Catholics would say, it's the prayer of the Church. Mm. So one of the things that came up for me while you were describing this is that liturgy is a tool. And one of the problems that comes up in, in Christian churches all the time is, well, what is the role of theological doctrine in the role of the layman in the pew? Like, what, what role does it play? Because you have these guys who go to seminary, they're you know immersed in this deep academic type analysis with like-minded individuals who are at the same intellectual level. And for our purposes here, I mean intellectual as relative, meaning these seminarians might be very, very well-versed on theology, but they might not know how to fix a tractor. So this isn't to say that the smartest people are the ones who go to seminary and study theology. It's just giftings in different areas. But that still doesn't change the fact that even on that, that somebody who is gifted, say, in, you know, working on a farm or building jets or whatever, they may not have a knack for theology. And what's really funny right now is because we're in such a modernistic culture, a lot of times churches will assume that a, you know, a scientist who's a biochemist or something like that Oh, wow, you're really smart. Can you teach us our class on the Trinity? You know, they'll bring them in, and then the guy ends up, you know, using different examples and analogies that are totally Mm -hmm. heretical. 
And and so the the challenge of the church, it seems like, oftentimes is like, okay, well, maybe it's just for the priests to understand theology, and you know, we just kind of facilitate a worship service. But liturgy seems to be, and the way it was explained to me uh, when we first started coming into the Anglican Church, was liturgy is a tool to allow people who may not have the privilege of going and actually studying all the theological nuances and, and working and teasing that out, to have a proper expression of faith that through the actual practice and implementation of liturgy in their lives and in their churches, they come to an understanding of God's reverence, the theological positions of the church through the actual expression in the liturgy. Yes, absolutely. I would fully agree. But it is unfortunately all too easy for the framers of liturgy to shoot themselves in the foot (laughs) when the liturgy is not expressed well enough in the local language, in our case, in English. I want to give you a few examples of where it can go wrong. We have a prayer here that's listed. This is the prayer that should be prayed after communion. What what page are you on? 137. 137. Now, we're, we're in the... Anglican Church of North America. We are. Book of Common Prayer, 136. Book of Common Prayer. And there's a prayer that's recommended to be said afterwards. Now, are we going to get in trouble for what you're about to say here by the authorities that framed this book? I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, keep going. How's but, that? That, that? That's pretty Protestant, you know? They aren't paying that's gotta, me. That's got to give us a point in the Protestant camp. <laughs> they aren't paying me, so they can't fire me. There you go. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's good. That's really good. And for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of the body, your Son, and heirs of your eternal kingdom. Now, let me ask you this little question. What are these holy mysteries? Why are they holy mysteries? Why are they called holy mysteries? Why does the liturgy call them holy mysteries? Because they didn't know what else to put there. (laughs) Don't spit your wine out there, Laura. (laughs) This is, I'm not grading you on the answer. I want to know what you think. Oh, what I actually think. Um, Why did they pick the phrase, these holy mysteries? Well, I guess, I guess the, the main reason would be is that, that comes to me is that, Communion is a a mystery that is for the believer that has an assuring effect. And so it's it's a mystery that assures us of our of our of our salvation in the church. And why does it deserve the term mystery? Because it's it's not comprehensible. Oh. That's what I would that's what I would say. I would agree that how the question of how can the Lord be in the sacrament of the altar, yeah. can in fact uh, elude our comprehension. But I would startly maintain that this is not what the prayer means here at all. Okay. So, so I was way off. Perhaps. Okay. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not getting my MDiv yet, so I'm, I'm good. Recall that, Recall that a good liturgy is entirely, more or less entirely, Mm scripture-based. 
So we have to go back to the Greek word mysterion, which Paul uses in his writings four times, I believe. Now, mysterion in Greek certainly did give rise, eventually, to the English word mystery. Okay. But as is very common in the development of languages and of lexical items, that is, words from one language to another, the development does not happen without a change in meaning. Mm -hmm. So to us, the word mystery is an unsolved question. Think of the mysteries solved by Sherlock Holmes or somebody. Yeah. But mysterion in Greek meant a secret body of knowledge that was reserved only for initiates in a religion. Hmm. You, like a gnosis. Yes, very much. Gnosis, the so-called mystery religions. Right. You had to be initiated in order to receive the, 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 the revealed truths, yeah. the secret revealed truths. In other words, in the term mysterion in ancient Greek, the emphasis is not on an unsolved riddle. The emphasis is on secret knowledge. That's been revealed. That's been revealed only the, to the adherents of the religion. Now, almost entirely when Paul uses the word mysterion in his letters, this is what he means. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Behold, I show you, I tell you a mystery. That is to say, let me tell you something you may not know. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment of a twinkling in our light. That's what he means by the word mysterion. He's not trying to withhold anything from the people. Mm. He's trying to reveal something to them. So I would say, without equivocation, that the meaning of this phrase in this post-communion prayer is, and for, thank you, Fa Heavenly Father, for assuring us in these truths that you have revealed to us. What truths? The truth that Jesus is, in fact, present in his body and blood in the sacrament of the altar. That's the truth. The emphasis is not on any unsolved riddle. Right. It's on, it's on a revealed truth. And also, another one's coming, that we are living members of the body of your son. Wow. We are joined to the body of Christ. That's a big revealed truth. Yeah. And that we are heirs of your eternal kingdom. Another big revealed truth. Mm-hmm. So why does the post-communion prayer here in this year of grace 2022 insist on using the term these holy mysteries when we know that most people will take it to be to yeah. mean some sort of unsolved riddle? Yeah, that's how I took it. Do you remember Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof? He was asked why, why your community acts this way. And he sings tradition, yeah. tradition, tradition, tradition. So it's, a, it's an example of the what I call the weight of tradition in Bible translation that invades the liturgy as well, big time. Mm -hmm. And so, so real quick on, just as a, a side note, and I want to come back to, to the tradition comment because I, I think that's important to talk about. What is the mark of of a person who has understanding of a mystery then? Like, what would you say is an indication? Because obviously there's a group who still see it as a mystery, mm. and then there's the initiate. And so what actually represents that the Christian 
actually knows the truth and it's no longer a mystery. Oh, he lives like Christ wants him okay. to live. Yeah. By, he, by the fruit, basically. By the fruit. Yep. Yes, by the fruit that the Christian shows in his life. You won't believe me, but that was what I had in my head. I got the first one wrong, but I had the second one right. I just didn't get the answer. <laughs> but but back on to tradition. So you and I have talked about this before, uh, that you know every, every denomination needs good Christians. Hmm. And it seems like this, this problem of tradition, not in the sense of you know overthrow the whole system, but in the sense of, like, at every time in, in each denomination's histories, there's been problems in that denomination that, that are opportunities to be solved by the Christians that God's put in that denomination. And so this seems like a good example, because I could see some people saying, like, well, gosh, like, I mean, if, if, if they're getting the liturgy wrong, what else are they getting wrong, right? Well, I might as well just throw in the towel, walk away from the faith, um. Maybe just go join a church with a smoke machine, you know, some lasers, electric guitars, you know, water slides for baptism. <laughs> that would be an overreaction. Yes, I agree. But but why would you say that's an overreaction? Because I do think that a lot of people look at these things and they say, well, you know, if you're messing up your translation and your liturgy, like... Number one, communication is never perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you're married. Yeah. How many times in your life, in your wife, in your life, have you gone away uh, after a discussion your, with your wife, thinking you understand, you have a perfect agreement, then you find up, oh, you don't. How many times, Lindsay? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you, Jim, three thousand seven hundred forty-five <laughs> and a half. I'm not keeping score. I just have a good memory. <laughs> Here's my point that. That's right. I mean, she she always knows that I've got it right. It's, here's it's my the other half of the team that's the problem. Here's my point. Even St. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians, we see as through a glass darkly. So focusing on questions like this is not to focus upon all the things that liturgy actually gets right when you think about it. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's no reason not to put right what you can put right. Here's another example. An example of it, right or wrong? There's a phrase in the liturgy, the certain hope of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Did you hear my question? Is it, is, it a, is it an example of it getting right or getting wrong? Perhaps an example in where improvement is needed. Okay. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. If it's only probably the case that it should be wrong, then what's the probability that they should change it? It's high. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast with Dr. Polig. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did as well. If you did, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and write something really, really nice and sweet in the review. Or... Write a five-star review that is negative, but make sure it's five stars. Join us next week as Dr. Pollock and I get into how translators and framers can overcome some of the problems they've introduced into their liturgies, how the native language affects liturgies, and how churches are dealing with some of the complexities and misunderstandings of their liturgies. 
I'm Daniel Roberts. Thanks for listening. Keep thinking. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in That's, 75. You always pick that one. You got a different one? Yes. Above the bayonets mixed and crossed, men saw a gray, gigantic ghost. You, you a Christian or you American? Receding through the battle cloud <laughs> and heard We quote Bible verses here, Jim. The tempest loud, <laughs> death cry of a nation